All right, Rebecca, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Thanks for spending this evening with me virtually. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I thought, um, I've got a bunch of questions to ask, but I would love to start with um, having you walk through the wealth management industry. I'm not sure if that's how you see what you do sort of fit into um, the context of an industry. So would love to start there. And then if you could walk, walk us through like two or three things that folks might not naturally understand or be aware of about wealth management that um, you, you thought would be fun for people to know. Okay. Sounds good. So wealth management is interesting in that so many people say this is what they do. Um, you'll have investment advisors, financial advisors um, saying they are wealth managers. And many of them are in the sense that they invest a client's assets. Um, but I think what differentiates a firm that I work with um, from other wealth managers is really the type of wealth management that we do. Um, and what I mean by that is that in our role, we truly act as a client's fiduciary, which means that when we're investing for our clients, we're always acting as if we were the client and making decisions in a way that we would want someone to make for us. So whether that is investment decisions, whether it's administering a trust on behalf of clients, helping with tax planning, helping with educating their children, grandchildren, um, that is something that I think differentiates our firm. And another aspect of wealth management from my view is really the scale. So a lot of people will say wealth management is, you know, one, two, three million dollars, which is a significant amount of wealth for many people. But really the focus of the wealth management space I'm in is looking at clients who have a minimum of, you know, 25 million, um, but preferably even more than that. So it's really these large families that have sophisticated planning needs are what I think of when I think of the space of wealth management. Um, and then, um, so some of the trends that I would say are facing the wealth management industry that are going to cause us to change will be what many are talking about is the great wealth transfer, which is somewhere between 60 to $68 trillion of um, funds being moved to the millennial generation. And the millennial generation is interesting because it's much more diverse. And there are also a lot more um, women who are going to inherit wealth. And as this wealth transfer happens, it's going to cause wealth management firms to look at how to retain those clients. Um, in many instances, as a wealth manager, you lose clients whenever um, a death occurs, whenever a divorce occurs. And in an instance like this, when the millennials are inheriting all of this wealth, it's going to generally be upon the death of someone or some large life event that will trigger it. 
And so what is going to have to happen is really developing strong emotional connections with these clients. So it creates some type of loyalty. But I also think the other thing is really going to be technological advancements for serving these clients. Um, right now, a lot of the wealth management space is very um, manual and semi-automated. And I think it's really going to require a lot more um, automation of working with advisors to be able to serve these clients. Um, the second thing that we're going to face is fee pressure. There's a growing number of uh, funds in the market, and I'm sure you use them, your friends, your family use them. Um, and a lot of funds are charging little to no fees. And so that is an area where, I guess, in my business, we need to stand out as wealth managers to say, how are we adding value outside of just the products we're investing your money in? Um, because these products are going to be free. And when I mention products in a case like this, I'm talking about mutual funds, um, ETFs, things that you can invest, whether you're a wealthy individual or not. Um, and then um, I guess the, the third thing that is really important is cybersecurity. And as we become more digital and technologically advanced, um, the threats to our clients and the threat to our firm, and not just the firm that I work with, but firms globally are going to um, be faced with very sophisticated uh, cyber criminals. And then in tandem with that, it's really training our workforce to be much more aware of cybersecurity and also educating clients because many of our clients are high risk to begin with, whether it's physical security that they need or some type of um, technological security. So those are um, really the three things we're going to see, which is, you know, the great wealth transfer, a lot of fee pressure and um, cybersecurity. That's fascinating. Um, I, I would have never thought um, of, of any of those trends, actually, um, maybe cybersecurity a little bit, but that's really fascinating. I, I, I'd love to ask a follow-up question on building relationships that span three generations. Um, so as, as any salesperson would know, you've got some personas that, that you're, you're sort of able to naturally play well with. Mm -hmm. um, and it looks like for someone to be a really good wealth manager, they, they need to think, they, just the level of complexity in building the relationship to mm -hmm. be commercially lasting across multiple generations is just that much more challenging. It absolutely is challenging. And I think this is where you see two things needing to happen. And one, it is the patriarch of this family is naturally going to be close to their probably head, the, the lead on their team. So all of these wealth management teams, well, I shouldn't say all of these, but in our situation, all of our wealth management teams have a bench. So you're going to have you know one or two people that are your main points of contacts, whether that's you know a wealth advisor who helps you with your 
you know, tax planning and a portfolio manager who really helps on the investments, they're going to link up. But in addition to them, you're going to have a deep bench of very talented individuals that need to be brought into the relationship when there are family meetings. So that way, the patriarchs have their people, but also the younger generations, generation two, generation three, they're getting to know that when the patriarch passes away or moves money down to them, they have a contact within the firm that they can relate to. And that's where it is incredibly tricky because there's so much control that happens in these families of them wanting to control everything that they don't always open up with generation two, with generation three about the wealth. So by pairing those younger generations with a younger um, analyst at the firm, you at least start to make some some bridge building, I would say. But it's it's certainly easier said than done. Yeah, it, it seems to me like something that would requ- require an enormous amount of talent, but also discipline as you maintain relationships that span decades. Oh, absolutely. And I think internally, Maybe, you know, I'm sure most salespeople do this. You have ways of tracking people's interests and their hobbies. So that way, you know when to reach out to them. You know what types of events to entertain them at. You know, you know, when their birthdays are, when their anniversaries are, you know, their favorite wine that is hard to get, um, you know, experiences that they may not have had that you can offer them. Um, so it really comes down with getting to know these people, similar to how you would get to know a friend. You uh, And I would say that's another interesting aspect about the wealth management business is that I think too often, if you're not in it to truly care about the client, they're going to sense that. And there's so much trust that has to be built up between client and advisor that you never want to break that by letting them think you're only interested in them for what they bring to the table, which is money. Um, So it's really getting to know these people and caring about them, caring about their families that for me, I found to be helpful. Hmm. That's a really interesting segue into my next question for you, which is what inspired you to get in this business? Um, when you were first starting out and yeah honestly it was completely unintentional i never had aspirations to um, work in wealth management in fact i wasn't entirely sure what i was going to do Um, i think i've shared this with a couple people but when i first started college i thought for sure i was going to be um, a dentist that was my goal. I started out as a biochem undergrad and completed a lot of coursework there and then did some internships uh, with a dentist for several years and realized that there was no way I could have a career um, in the field for the rest of my life. So we quickly switched to business. 
<laughs> and um, and the even the reason I even got a job at Northern be, was because I was doing an internship, and a lady said, "Hey, you need to go talk to one of my best friends at Northern Trust. I think you would like the firm. I think you'd like her." And I did, and got a job offer a few weeks later. So, so that's amazing. Yeah. As you look back at your your career so far, what would you say is the best mistake you've made? You know, and and maybe it's not a career, maybe it's a life. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was the best mistake that you made? This is a hard one for me to answer because I try really, really hard not to make mistakes because I simply don't like to fail. But I will contrast that by saying I don't think that's a good thing. I think that my fear of failure and kind of this risk aversion that I have really uh, hinder me from trying new things. But I honestly think, um, you know, career aside, probably one of the um, best things that I had happened to me, which I'm still learning from, was uh, last, I guess, almost a year ago when I had a little bit of a health scare and it really taught me to be much more humble. Uh, it taught me my boundaries on how much I can have on my plate at one time. It gave me a lot of empathy for people that I probably never had or maybe empathy I didn't even know existed. And I think that may have been one of the biggest learning lessons for me was getting to a point where I physically hit a wall and had to stop and really reflect. Um, But from a career standpoint, um, I guess I'm fortunate that I haven't had a huge failure yet. Um, Doesn't mean it won't happen, though. As as you think about points in your life where you've had to make difficult decisions or points that have been pivotal. Can you talk about the guiding principles that you relied on to help you make that decision? Or if there was a quote that, you know, or a set of quotes that you look, Mm -hmm. you reflect on frequently as you're making these decisions. Yeah. Um, one thing that happened early on in my career was as soon as I was hired at Northern Trust, I had somebody from HR sit down with me and really coach me on how do you build a network within a large publicly traded firm? Because it's easy to get lost in the shuffle of a huge bank. and so what his advice to me was is you know, he sent me on a mission to meet these three women. And he, they were all very successful um, people within the firm. And he told me, you know, once you meet with them, follow up with them. And once you follow up with them, have them refer you to three more people to meet with. And every time you do it, keep a list of who you're meeting with, why you're meeting with them, what you learned from them. and kind of don't ever back down from that. And to this day, 
I still fall back on that initial network that he set me up with as mentors, as advisors, as guides in my career. And so I think one important thing that I've learned is to never underestimate the power of having people on your side. And many of these women, I met at a point in my career where they couldn't necessarily help me directly because they were way too far ahead. Um, But as I grew in my career, I could come to rely on them to help guide the decisions I was making, whether it was, you know, switching jobs within the firm, um, how to handle client situations, how to handle personnel situations, how to deal with, you know, difficult managers. Um, And so I still really place a lot of value on surrounding yourself with good people and really creating kind of a board of directors for yourself. Um, That would be one thing that I value. As far as quotes, I guess I have a couple that I really rely on or at least think about. And one of them, surprisingly, is from the show Mad Men. And uh, I can't remember the lady who said it, but she said, um, I never recommend imitation as a strategy. You'll be second very far from first. And I think as we grow in our careers, it's so easy to want to replicate what we saw the successful person in front of us doing. And in many instances, you can take bits and pieces of what they've done and you can apply it to yourself and you can use it to grow. But I think if you try to imitate exactly what they've done, it's not going to get you in the same position as they're in because you're different people. And I think you people need to learn to be okay with taking the best parts and using what can apply to them without thinking they need to become that person. Um, another interesting thing is um, there's a book, I think it's like, it has the word badass in it. I can't remember the whole title of it. Um, but it, it has this comment. It says, try seeing yourself through the eyes of someone who admires you. They get it. They believe in you leaps and bounds. Uh, they aren't connected to your insecurities and negative beliefs about yourself. Um, and I think this goes back to a question you asked me a little bit earlier about, you know, failure. And I think so often I'm so in touch with where I know I could be better or when I know I, um, I mean, I guess we, I, I maybe I should blink it and say we all know when we could be better and we all know where we can, where we're weak. But the person that's our cheerleader, the person that I, I'll go back to our advisory board, the person that's our mentor they're not looking at all of our flaws and weaknesses. They're looking at that and saying, okay, you you do have areas to grow, but look at all these other amazing things that you can do and are doing. And I think it's good to focus on what we're doing well and not always getting uh, pulled back by the things that we know we're not good at. And sometimes it's just okay to not be good at something and to have that insecurity about yourself, it's some, it's kind of what makes you relatable. 
is not being perfect. Um, so those are some things. And then um, the last thing that I thought about is when I graduated from high school, uh, this lady from, um, I want to say she was a nun in the Catholic Church, gave me this book called The Greatest Miracle in the World. And it's a short little paperback book. And I never placed too much thought into it until I was probably three years into college. And I said, well, fine, I'll finally read it. And in the end of it, um, it has this thing called the God Memorandum. And I would just encourage anyone who's interested to just look it up. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to be a firm believer in any type of religion to find value in what it has to say. Um, but it's far too long to go into um, in, in the time we have. That's fascinating. Um, I'll definitely put it on the notes to to the podcast so folks can can easily get it. I want to shift gears to something maybe a little bit lighter. Okay. Um, as is there something that a habit that is funny or absurd or weird that you you know is probably weird or funny or absurd to others, but you love to do it and it brings you a lot of joy. I don't know. I wish I had a fairly funny one. But I can't think of one. Well, I guess that's homework for all our listeners to, yeah. to name it. <laughs> or maybe for all the listeners who know me to like point out the weird, unusual thing I do that I don't know that I do. Uh, that, that. All right. I think, I think we can go with that one. Okay. So you mentioned a few minutes ago and we were talking about, you know, pushing yourself to to your limits, both physically and and just like in general. Mm-hmm. When you feel like you're doing that or when you're feeling overwhelmed or unfocused, what's sort of your your compass to be like, calm down now? What helps me to I would say stay sane and not reach these points is um, probably exercise. As weird as that might sound, I think everyone has their own thing. But whenever I'm in a position where I feel like the world is caving in or I just have more on my plate than I can possibly handle, it is not uncommon um, whether I'm in my office, it could be on a weekend, it could be early in the morning, late at night, it doesn't matter. If I reach that point at any time, you will see me disappear and I will go and just run or I will ride my bike. And a lot of times I need to do it alone and really in silence because it's almost uh, meditative for me to just get into this rhythm and I feel like it helps my brain to just like process everything that is coming at me um, and so that's the that is one thing um, and I think another thing that I really find value in is alone quiet time which at this point in my life I don't get much of 
But every once in a while, um, I will, you know, wait for everyone to go to bed or I'll get up in the morning and I'll just take, you know, 30 minutes by myself to just have a little bit of space. And that probably only happens once every six to eight weeks right now. Um, but I think that's also another reason why I value the the workout time and doing it alone is is kind of boring as that sounds. Um, but it made me think of an unusual habit that I have um, when you brought up this. And whenever I need to focus or really get something done, I will put a song on repeat and I could listen to the same song for hours and hours on end or depending on the duration of the project, it could be a week. And so there have been times in my life where I have listened to, here's an example, Adele's song, All I Ask, hundreds and hundreds of times on loop. That's amazing. Just to help me concentrate. And I can't concentrate and highly focus if the songs are changing. Um, a lot of people will say, well, put the classical music on. But for some reason, it has to be like a song that has just like, I've fallen in love with and I could listen to it forever. And even now, I'll, I'll still put that song on if I really need to focus and just like crank stuff out. But that is probably a little bit unusual. Huh. Yeah. I, I, I think that fits the bell. Yeah. Um, Sorry, but we can go back to when I'm feeling completely overwhelmed. What do I do? That was where we were headed. No, that was, uh, I, I think that's, that's, that's an amazing, um, I did not know that about you. So I feel like I learned something new today. Yeah. As you look back at the last couple of years, mm-hmm. um, a lot has changed. What do you think is, has added the most value to your life personally? Um, that you've developed or found or bought or been gifted in the last couple of years? Um, gosh, I think, and I know we're both in Kellogg together right now, um, but I think the program has been one of the most amazing things that's happened to me recently. And not for the sake of the program, but because it has taught me so much about other people, it's opened my eyes to other cultures, uh, to other industries, and it's really taught me to be much more open and accepting of, I want to say life in general, than maybe I ever was before. And it wasn't that I would suggest I was closed-minded or not, but I was unaware of how big the world is. Um, And earlier, you know, we can talk about, you know, my career in wealth management. And for me, I've only been at the same company my entire career. So my career viewpoint is rather narrow. Um, And then if you think about, you know, I kind of grew up in a small town, which is a little bit you know, different than maybe how I live my life right now. Um, And I think having just Kellogg in my life has been great. I think the other thing that it's really 
allowed me to do is be who you are and to be accepting of yourself. So not just open to kind of whatever everyone else is doing, but really just loving who you are and where you came from and what you can bring to the table. Um, I think it's, you know, also over the past, I would say year taught me that it's okay not to know things, even when other people think you should know it. Um, everybody can't know everything. And I think a lot of times we make these assumptions about people because of maybe their background or their career that they're going to have some super insight about something when in fact life is so different than that. Um, and, and I've really enjoyed that. And then, you know, I'll just finally say on this that it's okay to just be in the place you are. You don't constantly have to be um, feeling like you're you're not settled where you're where you are. I think it's okay sometimes to just be content with the job that you have, with the education that you have. Um, and I'm not saying to stop growing and to stop challenging yourself. But I think what Kellogg has taught me is that there is a time when it's okay to just let everything settle and to really showcase what you can do where you are um, without constantly saying, well, I could take on more, I could do more, I could be more, but just living in kind of the moment and enjoying it. You know, that, that's something that certainly resonates with me so much. Um, I have this I have this feeling, I think I told you about this mm-hmm. um, a few weeks ago. I was like, it feels like I'm running a race, but it's not like, do I want to be in this race? It says like somebody else's game. Right. It's not my game. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, such an amazing way of like recentering. It absolutely is. And I think for a lot of people, it's easy to get caught up in the moment and you end up chasing after something you never even valued in the first place. Um, And so everybody needs to sit down, I think, and reset and reflect. And if we're always striving for what's next, what's the next job, what's the next position, what's the next bonus, what's the next opportunity and never for me at least it never gives me a chance to really reflect on why do I want that next opportunity why do I want that you know next position because one thing I have learned by having kind of a group of women mainly and and I guess a couple men throughout my career that I have relied on is by getting to know people in various positions throughout finance and at various different levels, you begin to see behind the scenes of what is life really like in that position. And then you have to sit down and look through your values and and say, does that position line up with my values? And if the answer is yes, then I think you should go for it. But in some instances, the answer is going to be, Nothing about that position lines up with my values, but I sure like the amount of money that 
you know, you get from that position. And that's when it becomes tricky because then you have to start asking, well, is that money the price I'm willing to pay to sacrifice the values? And for some people, it's fine. I mean, I think most people probably have a price. It's just, what does it look like? Um, and so, I don't know. I feel like that was on a different side tangent, but just kind of my thoughts on it. Yeah, no, it, it's very it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. We've been jamming for a while, so I've got two questions left for you. All right. One is, if you look at the books on your nightstand or your Kindle mm-hmm. or on the ball, what are you most excited about reading right now? Okay, good question. So I just finished All the Light We Cannot See. So that was an amazing book. I don't know if you've read it or not. Uh, I haven't read it. Okay, highly recommend it. Um, What I am going to start reading is Where the Crawdads Sing. I checked it out from the library back in November, and I just got it on my Kindle app. I don't even remember why I checked it out, but I'm excited to read it. Um, And then a go-to book that I love is In the Garden of Beasts by Eric Larson, I believe. And it's just an amazing historical nonfiction. I mean, I get maybe fiction. I think there's a bit of a blend happening throughout that book, which is good. And then um, Tools of Titans. Have you read Tools of Titans? I have, yes. Okay. I think it's... I mean, I, I'd say reading is a bit stretched. Like, it it floats around in my, my living room and, like, I pick up and read a couple pages. Yeah, I'm the same. I've had it for about 12 months. But every once in a while, I open it up, and, like, you just get this great little nugget of wisdom from it that I find absolutely fascinating. Um, so that's another one I love. And then... Um, I have to throw in a plug for a dear friend of mine who just finished um, a book. I don't remember which one it is in her uh, collection, but her name is uh, Karen Tanaby, and she wrote a book called The Gilded Years a couple years ago, and it was about the first African-American woman to attend Vassar College, which at that time Vassar was an all-girls school, and fascinating read for anybody interested it is um, fiction with you know some uh, I guess real things uh, intertwined in it Um, but then most recently she wrote a hundred sons and so that is really what's next on my list those are some of my favorites yeah so when I'm going to see your book list I don't know when I'm going to read that but that those all sound amazing. Uh, my last question for you uh-huh. is: As you think about three or five years from now, what happening today makes you feel the most hopeful about our future? So it's interesting we're having this conversation today, right in the midst of a pandemic. Because I think if you would have asked me this question four weeks ago, the answer would have been worlds apart. Um, but I think asking, answering this right now 
I am hopeful that people are beginning to value having real relationships as opposed to virtual I don't even want to say virtual relationships because I think that's an overstatement. I think it's some type of like unhealthy social engagements with people where everything is so detached that there's no, I don't know, let's see how to explain this. But I feel like society has gotten to this point where we feel the freedom to say and do to other people whatever we want because we've removed the human element of, I guess, from all of our interactions. So we don't think twice about yelling and screaming at the person driving in front of us because they cut us off or whatever, and it could have been unintentional. But if you have to humanize that person would you start yelling and screaming and acting like an idiot? Um, or the flip side is, if you are the one driving and you're constantly cutting people off, would you really behave like that if you knew who was in that car and maybe where they were trying to get or what they were trying to do? Um, and that's like a pretty, I don't know, kind of weird example. But I feel like right now people are being isolated to the point where they can't survive on Instagram alone and they can't survive on TikTok alone and they can't survive on LinkedIn alone or Facebook or whatever their jam kind of is. They're kind of like, man, I miss people. And Zoom isn't even people. It's great that I see them, but I don't touch them. I don't, you know, get all the nuances of what's going on with them. Um, and so I think that would be my hope is that we really start valuing relationships and genuine relationships over, I guess, the number of people um, that we know. That's very thoughtful. Thank you. Yeah.